Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards, the weekly podcast. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in. Hope you're all kind of settling back into the early autumn rhythm. I like early autumn. It fills me with a sort of curious optimism, not based on anything, because um, there is quite a lot of darkness around. But you know what I mean? We're sort of back from August away and you kind of feel, oh yeah, maybe there is some hope ahead. I don't know. But anyway, thank you so much for uh, tuning in. Now, last week, I did episode two of The Prime Minister's We Never Had, but I didn't, at the end of that episode, tell you all the characters in the book, so I'll do that in a minute. Uh, Then, uh, if it's okay with all of you, I'm going to reflect on the politics of social care, which is going to be huge this week, next week, and indeed in the months to come. And the sort of weird, well, it's not weird, I think there are reasons for it, but illuminating reasons for the catastrophic failure of political will to deal with this uh, crisis. Um, And then we've got your brilliant questions. They reach uh, genius level, as ever. Afghanistan, uh, all kinds of other rich themes uh, on your questions. Labour and Scotland, and yeah, on and on. Brilliant questions. And I won't be able to get through all of them, but I read them all and I'm just overwhelmed. And the ones I read out, they're no better than the ones I don't. They're all brilliant. So thank you very much and keep them coming in. So yeah, if that's okay with you, that's the kind of lineup for our uh, time together this week. As ever, there are people in Australia, the whole of Europe and Skegness. We're all together as one um, in this period of British politics, which otherwise is totally atomized. Yeah, just very quickly, because I know I've done two episodes at least on the Prime Ministers we never had. I've got this book with me. It's now, yeah, da 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 in the bookshops. And hold on, I'm just opening the page uh, uh, to go through the list of the Prime Ministers we never had, because we had together with your brilliant questions and other themes so much to cram in last week I never quite got there so as discussed before there are 11 prime ministers we never had I argue and they're in 10 chapters so here they are and uh, say it's now in the bookshops and on all the familiar websites begins with Rab Butler the a kind of original prime minister we never had. You know what it's like with Rab Butler. When everyone says, oh, Rab Butler. They say, oh, yes, of course, the best prime minister we never had. Well, I don't deal with best because that's subjective and self-indulgent. <clears throat> but he definitely deserves to be there. He had three chances to be prime minister, Rab Butler. And uh, did he blow it or were those chances as deep as they appeared to be? That's one of the themes, really. I wonder whether any of these people, so widely seen as the next prime minister or a likely prime minister, had any realistic chance of seizing the crown. Next up, Roy Jenkins. I talked about him a bit last week. Barbara Castle makes it, and I'm thrilled she makes it, because only just in that she never stood for a leadership contest, and that's a fairly fundamental qualification to be close to being a prime minister. Barbara never did. 
but she is interesting and had a clear, coherent political philosophy, as we discussed briefly last week. Uh, Dennis Healy makes it widely seen for quite a lot of time as a likely prime minister. But how much space did he have to seize the crown? The big moment for him was 1980. But look at the mood in the Labour Party in 1980. Remember, in the UK, we are a party-based democracy. Neil Kinnock, 1992, election night. A lot of pollsters, a lot of pundits thought he would be the next prime minister in a hung parliament. Michael Heseltine, burdened by the perception that he was aching to be prime minister and um, had several chances. Well, did he have several? The key moment for him, and he only stood in one leadership contest, very revealing that the media culture is to see these people as plotting relentlesly to be prime minister. Heseltine stood in one leadership contest only, famously the one in 1990. He destroyed Margaret Thatcher, but he could not seize the crown. Michael Portillo, in the mid-1990s, the Thatcherite pin-up. Michael Gove wrote a book on Portillo as the great future hero for the Thatcherite right. And many saw him then, and he partly, but only partly, saw himself as the next Tory Prime Minister. And of course, famously, he didn't get it. And in the only leadership contest in which he stood in 2001, he stood half-heartedly. Uh, all ambition drained out of him for reasons of great deep complexity. Uh, Ken Clark, who joked that his hobby in British politics was to stand and lose in Tory leadership contests. Um, when he was Chancellor under John Major, there wasn't a day that passed in which there was an article saying, Major watch out, Ken Clark is more popular, he's more successful, he is the next Prime Minister, he never made it. David and Ed Miliband, two brothers, two of the most decent people in British politics, had ambition thrust upon them at about the same time, and neither made it to the top. They didn't, I think, enter politics, unlike some of the others, with aching ambition, but they acquired it. And as a result, two decent people kind of destroyed each other. And finally, Jeremy Corbyn, in a way the most extraordinary figure in modern politics, a figure who had no interest whatsoever to be a leader, to be even on the front bench of the Labour Party in Parliament, accidentally becomes leader. And then in 2017, accidentally almost deprives Theresa May of her overall majority, at which point even people like Tony Blair said, look, you know, Jeremy might become Prime Minister. It would be a disaster, but I think he might. What went wrong after that? So there they all are, uh, 11 Prime Ministers we never had. And it's in the bookshops. It's always a great thrill to utter that sentence. So anyway, I hope you get it and let me know what you think of it and your thoughts on the theme. But now, social care. Da -da -dum, da -da -dum. God, this topic recurs with a 
urgency and frequency which says so much about British politics. If you step back from the immediate dramas and reflect, it is absolutely clear that there is a social care crisis in Britain that people, or some of them, of course not all of us, are terrified of the costs involved and every government of recent times comes in aware of this crisis and then does nothing. Famously, Boris Johnson, uh, when he became Prime Minister in July 2019, uh, I think he did it just because he didn't want his statement to be wholly about Brexit, but he claimed to have a plan for social care. He clearly didn't have a plan or else it would have been implemented and there wouldn't be this agonising now. Uh, but having said it, it's very interesting about Johnson. Although he is unaware of the most important word of, in British politics, consequences, if you say something or do something, there are huge consequences. But he does, I think, sometimes have an awareness that if you utter something of great significance there will be consequences if you then don't act on it in any way. So I'm told that um, that ridiculous uh, Brexit referendum pledge about 350 million quid a week for the NHS, he was tormented by the fact that there was absolutely no sign of this Brexit dividend under Theresa May, to the point when Theresa May did announce an increase in NHS spending. Do you remember? And she struggled to be disingenuous but wholly perversely she claimed it as a Brexit dividend the relatively small increase in NHS spending but Johnson was pressurizing the cabinet to do something about NHS spending because of the what he knew to be a preposterous but defining lie in the referendum campaign and it's the same with social care someone said to him your opening statement of Prime Minister cannot just be about Brexit. And they would have talked about the other big issues and challenges around, and social care was obviously one of them. So he pretended he had a plan. And in December 2019, in the election, he not only pretended to have a plan, uh, but that it could be funded without any increases in income tax, VAT and national insurance as well as claiming that the triple lock on pensions and other related features would be intact. A lot of that's going to go in the coming weeks, and certainly in case of the pensions, justifiably. But it is remarkable that the childish tax and spend debate in Britain or in England doesn't really allow a government to do something which most voters would welcome, to sort out social care. Uh, it seems to me, you know, if uh, I admire almost Theresa May, although I think it was more uh, the excellent, thoughtful Nick Timothy who did it, I admire her for putting in the 2017 manifesto a, an attempt to address the social care question 
it was uh, inept on two grounds. You don't announce a policy to deal with social care in the middle of an election campaign. It was very interesting, the reason they did it. They thought they were going to win so easily, why not get a mandate to raise money for social care in the big victory that was deemed to be inevitable? And that was quite a brave thought process when you think about it. Um, they wanted a mandate to give them the space to deal with social care. And it appeared that there was no better mandate than the 2017 election, when under Jeremy Corbyn they thought they would probably win something close to a landslide. We know what happened. That was deemed to be the dementia tax. When Labour under Gordon Brown contemplated a set of proposals, it was described by the, their Tory opponents as the death tax. And each attempt has been blocked because of the crude tax and spend debate, in England at least. Yet, as I say, if you step back, voters know that social care needs to be addressed. And they know that it needs to be addressed fairly, but effectively. And that the level of money required must be raised, and the means by which it is done must be, as I say, relatively fair. And yet, no government has found the space, whether it's Johnson with a majority of 80, whether it was the New Labour era with landslide majorities, or Theresa May, who lost a majority putting forward a proposition. And in that gap, there is a sort of perverse paralysis. I'm reading a lot at the moment of James Joyce and the Dubliners, or he calls it Dubliners, where the theme is paralysis. It's very interesting. And there is a paralysis in British politics when it comes to an obvious need, an obvious cost to meet that need, and the means of meeting it. And at the moment, you have internal divisions with the government on several fronts. How much do you raise? It seems that Johnson cannot contemplate raising more than 1% on national insurance, whereas others in the cabinet recognise rightly that that won't be enough, especially if in the early years, quite a lot of that money is going to be spent meeting the shortfall on the NHS, a messy way of doing things. Then there are the Tory MPs who cannot bear the idea of a manifesto commitment being broken. To give them real credit, and it is real credit, uh, although you could argue that national insurance is an unfair way of raising money, Blair and Brown came under huge pressure in the 2001 election to rule out any increases in national insurance contributions. And they refused to do that because they knew there had to be some way of raising money to pay for the needed spending in the NHS. And they had committed themselves not to touch income tax and therefore national insurance was the only thing available to them. So they didn't go into the 2001 election as the Tories did in 2019, 
committed to no increase in national insurance contributions. Johnson's determination in 2019 to basically rule out any tax rises of any significance at all puts him in a bind now. And national insurance, while I can understand why he opts for that, that's the one Blair and Brown did in uh, 2002 to pay for the NHS. And it's not the same, again, the sort of whole tax and spend thing. It's not as highly charged as income tax rises and all the rest of it. Clearly unnerves a lot of his MPs. And uh, we're in a position now where Keir Starmer, because of his reputation, unfair actually, for indecisiveness, means he cannot really abstain on big votes. And Labour will vote against, I suspect, a proposed increase in national insurance to pay for social care, and so will a considerable number of Tory MPs. So once again, we're in this bonkers dance over social care and how to pay for it. And it's bonkers because voters are more than aware that it costs money to pay for social care. A majority would support a rational rise in tax in a form to be determined. And yet because of the tax and spend debate at British elections, governments are paralysed to do what's needed and what would be popular. So let's see how it goes in the coming uh, weeks uh, and months because it's going to be one of the epic battles of the autumn. And it becomes a battle because Johnson hemmed himself in in the 29 election unnecessarily. He was going to win it over Brexit and the um, opposition to Jeremy Corbyn. But he felt the need to be indiscriminate in his commitments not to raise taxes. Well, how do you pay for these things? And given that he pretended to have a solution to social care from the very beginning, he can't hide from it even though the manifesto commitments makes it very, very difficult indeed to pay for it. The whole paralysis, to quote James Joyce, over social care um, is emblematic of our hopeless debates about tax and spend. And if um, Keir Starmer was clever, he would try to reconfigure that whole tax and spend debate. But that's for another day, because we now need to move on to your brilliant questions. So Scott Cresswell has written, um, he was the one who came up with, you know, politicians in wrong parties, which has sustained many a podcast over recent months. Um, uh, Scott says, apologies, continue flogging a dead horse. I don't think it's a dead horse, Scott. Keep flogging. Uh, but on politicians in the wrong party, how about most leaders of the Liberal Lib Dem parties? Most politicians have ambition, and surely, as history has shown since the 1920s, it's wasted in a third party. Those like David Steele and Charles Kennedy could have been on the Labour right, while those like Jeremy Thorpe and Nick Clegg could be One Nation Tories. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're onto something very interesting here. I've got absolutely no doubt that um, 
David Steele and Charles Kennedy were left of centre political figures. They described themselves in that uh, light. Whereas, um, I don't know if any of you read The New Statesman this week, there's a very good piece by Harry Lambert about the many reasons why uh, to explain the fall of Labour from its high point in sort of 97, 2001. And one of them was the decision by Nick Clegg, who fought the 2010 election to the left of New Labour, to le legitimise the austerity programme of those two uh, hyper-Thatcherites, Cameron and Osborne. And um, it, it completely uh, called into question the purpose of the Liberal Democrats and presented them with an existential crisis. There's no doubt in 2010 a lot of the people that voted for the Lib Dems did so because they thought New Labour was too right-wing. And so they put uh, Nick Clegg into power and he then moved well to the right of New Labour in dancing so enthusiastically uh, with Cameron and Osborne. So yeah, Jeremy Thorpe, a bit more of a complicated case and indeed both were ardent pro-Europeans, Thorpe and Clegg, so they would have struggled in the Tory party, Scott. But I think economically they were, well certainly Nick Clegg, wholly at ease for a time, though uh, his rather good memoir uh, conveys regret. I mean, he thought Osborne and Cameron were sort of centrist modernisers, as did much of the BBC and others. And he realised belatedly that on economic matters they were turbocharged Thatcherites. But um, I remember Steele and Kennedy speaking to them during that early coalition phase in despair. So you're right, they were closer to Labour Scott. Keep flogging that dead horse. It's a good theme. Um, Andy Kemp. As if empty supermarket shelves with Nando chicken shortages, lack of McDonald's, milkshakes, beer supply issues at Weatherspoons. That's bloody hilarious with old uh, Tim Martin, the Brexiteer. We're not enough. We now fa face health supply problems with test tubes in short supply, etc. This is a light-hearted analysis from Andy. Now, he says, I recognise there are multiple reasons for these problems. Uh, yeah, but also Brexit. And he says he's disillusioned with UK media coverage of Brexit. I now seek my news on EU-related matters from foreign news outlets, including RTE. Sorry, another podcasts I regularly listen to. Scandalous, Andy. Scandalous. Just stick with this one. At what stage do you think the UK population will realise the mistake they made? Or will they? Will UK media coverage mask the whole problem to the extent that those responsible will never face the consequences? Your favourite word. Um, and he puts in brackets, living in a former North Midlands red wall seat. Okay. Almost inevitably, at some point, uh, those who act have to face consequences in politics. Uh, often Tory prime ministers or Tory politicians have longer breathing space because the newspapers and therefore the BBC just give them more space. I suspect if Gordon Brown had been prime minister with either Afghanistan or Britain's high death rate in the pandemic, he would have been uh, almost uh, tormented out of power by media coverage. 
but at some point consequences are played out. So 2017 was a very interesting example in that election. Tory MPs came rushing back to Westminster saying, you've got to end austerity. We are losing seats because parents are in despair about school cuts or, you know, loss of jobs in parts of an area where austerity had hit hard. Even Thatcherism, which has endured for so many decades, um, council house sales hailed when Thatcher was prime minister. But now the lack of affordable rented accommodation is an example of the chickens coming home to roost. And you're right about Brexit, Andy. Uh, the BBC, I think, are too scared to do it. It's not a direct instruction, but they're aware that their chairman is a Tory supporter or was and a funder, and its director general wants to woo this government. So editors act accordingly. And the newspapers, so many of them are committed or were committed to Brexit, they will never accept they got it wrong. But the consequences will be played out. Uh, Paul Cooper has done a lot of uh, analysing of votes, irrespective of the sort of first-past-the-post system. And he notes uh, very revealingly that only three times, 1945, 1997 and 2001, have Labour won enough seats in England and Wales to achieve a governing majority without relying on any Scottish constituencies. It's a very good point uh, Paul, uh, Paul makes because even when Michael Howard uh, was leading the Tories, uh, he was much better than Ian Duncan Smith, but not that formidable. The Tories got more votes in England than Labour under Blair. Um, so it is a huge issue. Can Labour ever win without Scotland? If so, how? And I, if I were Keir Starmer, what I would do is not agonise about that because you go crazy. You just form policies arising from accessibly potent values and put the case across the whole of the United Kingdom and see what happens. But Paul has set the context of the challenge. Uh, laundry Joe, busy doing so much laundry these days. Uh, why did Harold, why did Labour let Harold Wilson stay on in 1970 after committing the unforgivable sin of losing an election? Good question. It wouldn't happen these days, Laundry Joe. It did then because they couldn't coalesce under an alternative. That was basically it. Wilson had won two elections by then and he did a weird thing after 1970, Laundry Joe. He virtually disappeared from public view. He went off to write his memoirs um, and very few saw him for a long time, but he didn't resign and no one challenged him. All the talk, it's one of the themes of my book about prime ministers we never had, all the talk about possible challenges to Wilson in the end no one ever did, and he left voluntarily. Uh, the only one of the Prime Ministers to do so, really. Um, now, Jeff uh, Strange writes, um, in all your years of analysis, I'm not that old, Jeff, and commentary, have you ever known a lesser qualified bunch of Ministers of State? 
across the whole government. I haven't actually. Um, the you know the Thatcher governments of the nineteen eighties were contentious, uh, as many of you, well, maybe not many of you, some of you will have lived through, but some they were big figures. A lot of them. There aren't big figures in this uh, cabinet. Um, and then he puts in capital letters the consequences of paucity. Where has all the talent gone? Where are the big beasts? Where are the leaders? And I would include Labour in this. Um, yeah, good questions. I mean, a lot of the ones in the Tory party, of course, were famously kicked out in the autumn of 2019. I mean, to take one example, uh, even if you're a Labour supporter, imagine if Rory Stewart was Prime Minister at the moment, given his views on Afghanistan and Brexit. The country, and arguably, well, I don't know where, the Tor where that would leave the Tory party, but the country would be in a better place. And, the, you know, the, Oliver Letwin, he was, he was a sort of ultra-Thatcherite uh, in many ways, but a big figure, and it kicked out the party. Ken Clark lost the whip. Um, so a lot of the big beasts in the Tory party were just expelled, uh, perversely. Uh, and in Labour... I think probably it's the way Labour candidates are selected and the criteria applied, which means there are a lack of big beasts in Labour. Uh, Jeff says, see you at King's Place. Oh, yeah. Hope to see you there, Jeff, and many others of you. King's Place, Monday, September the 13th. Uh, we're going to have a great night, like the olden days, live in King's Place. And incidentally... If you can't get there, there are streaming tickets as well. We've got a lot to get through that night. Uh, thank you, uh, Jeff. Joanna Larter says, in a part, uh, yeah, she has read that, um, do you remember um, the great, well, he's still around actually, Robert Powell. Uh, she noted whilst watching a film of his, uh, which I've also seen, a modern updated version of, um, I think it was The 39 Steps, uh, she noted that Robert Powell was down as a supporter of the SDP, along with, do you remember the film critic, Barry Norman? Yeah, it's right, Joanna. Um, a lot of those kind of BBC types and actors were great fans of the SDP in the early phase. Um, and so I'm not surprised by Robert Powell being, you know, they were, they were never Thatcherites, but couldn't get on with the kind of Labour Party under Michael Foote and so on. So they turned to the SDP. I'm not, and Robert Powell, yeah. Joanna uh, says, quite a revelation, but I think it's true. Uh, I kind of remember that. Not that I'm old, Joanna, but I do remember it. Uh, Gareth Curzon. Uh, what could a future Labour government do in a financial or other crisis to successfully counter the inevitable bashing of its fiscal record as in 2008 to 10. Well, Gareth, what you try and do is win the argument. Uh, what Labour has been useless at in recent times is winning arguments. There was an argument to be won on its approach in 2008 to 10, which historians, I think, on both the left and right will consider to be epic Gordon Brown's response to the financial crash. Um, and similarly, there was an argument to counter austerity, but Labour couldn't make it. So you try and win the arguments and try and get people in the top positions who can make arguments and win them. Thank you, Gareth. Uh, Stephen, 
Uh, unlike Iraq, uh, this is uh, Stephen Townsley, unlike Iraq, the Afghan conflict had the USA invoke Article 5 of the NATO Treaty. This is when the conflict originally began. Article 5 says an attack on one is an attack on all. Um, using the idea of consequences, what would have been the consequence for NATO if European allies had refused to follow a treaty obligation? Speculation. However, America going into Afghanistan alone may well have been the beginning of the end for NATO. Might have been Stephen. But given the way Afghanistan has ended, perhaps on a different level to the one you're suggesting, it was indeed the beginning of the end for NATO. But thank you, Stephen. By the way, I had absolutely no idea it uh, raised a NATO treaty, treaty article. So thank you for alerting us to that, Stephen. Uh, Gareth Robbins. Do I detect a hint of enjoyment in certain political commentators' voices, given the general consensus that Joe Biden has handled the US exit from Afghanistan poorly? I've not heard a great deal of reference to the fact that it was Donald Trump who made the rod for Biden's back. I don't know, actually, Gareth. I've heard a lot of references to that. And of course, Trump didn't really do that. Biden was free to do what he wanted. I think there is a bigger question as to what alternative route Biden could have taken. In other words, if he had carried on with the uh, policy of occupation, say, for two more years, would the Taliban have been any weaker? Uh, so there is something to Biden's strategy, but the manner of the execution, I think, was so completely disastrous um anyway gareth says oh yeah thank you gareth uh, uh he was brought here by the prime minister's book the po brought to the podcast not brought to um hold account to himself or anything uh speaking of wilson interviews which i've mentioned and others on the podcast there's some good callahan stuff too yeah i completely agree gareth uh look on youtube callahan was a brilliant interviewee deeply flawed political figure but he was a fantastic interviewee and the modern Labour lot are on the whole poor interviewees and they should look back at Callaghan. I was surprised how good Wilson was and Callaghan was a brilliant interviewee. I think it's why he survived so long in spite of you know being Chancellor at a time of devaluation etc. Uh, Gareth as I can recall my dad and granddad discussing Sunny Jim in the living room of my grandparents house in the late 70s. My first memory of politics. Pretty close to my first as well, Sonny Jim. I do remember Wilson actually in the mid-70s. Um, what a time. Epic politics of the 70s. We need to revisit that decade. I might do so in ways I'll let you all know quite soon. Uh, thank you for that. Peter Dew from Southsea in Portsmouth. I've listened to part two of the Prime Minister's We Never Had podcast. That was the last week's one. And was reminded of a quote from Dennis Healy's good quote. When asked about being the best Labour Prime Minister they never had, he said, I'd rather people wondered why I hadn't been Prime Minister than wondered why I had. Great rationalisation and funny from Dennis Healy. With this in mind, do you think that some or maybe many of your choices have actually enjoyed longer and more prestigious political careers by dint of not actually becoming Prime Minister? Really enjoy the podcast, usually listening, whilst walking along South Sea Beach, looking over the Solent and the Isle of Wight. Living the dream, Peter. Uh, what a great way of listening and having a good time. Uh, it's a really good question. 
No, I think most would have ached to have been Prime Minister and suffer from the fact that they never got there. A deep sense of rejection. Not all of them, but I think to take some of the living ones, uh, Neil Kinnock to this very day is tormented by the rejection in 1992, which he thinks was partly a personal rejection by voters. Imagine if you had to live with that, any of us lot, that a country in effect rejects you personally. Ed Miliband has been quite open that he has therapy to recover from his election defeat in 2015 and so on. But it's a brilliant question because I argue in the book that none of them really are failures when you compare their careers to so many others because they got so close and in some cases had a huge impact in terms of policy. Look at Roy Jenkins as Home Secretary or Hesseltine with the inner cities. Um, but I think most of them are tormented. Steve Petrie wonders whether we are losing our appetite for the simplistic formulation of solutions to complicated challenges, in this case the war on terror. Steve believes, and he's a much more authoritative than me on this with a, a, a big career, uh, which uh, got him behind the scenes on you know these epic moments like Afghanistan and so on. Um, a referendum and a general election were arguably, arguably won on the back of some three-word slogans. Will recent events at home and now in Afghanistan lead more of us to be more questioning of those who offer similar simplistic formulations in the future? Well, see, I, I don't know whether you think that's a good or a bad thing. I think that would be a good thing if things like get Brexit done um, was subject to a much greater sense of scepticism. And similarly with Afghanistan and some of the other things. Do you remember Tony Blaise say it's the right thing to do? And you think, oh, of course, yeah, the right thing to do. But the right thing to do is a deeply subjective course. And, um, yeah, uh, it, I can't bear that sort of technocratic, apolitical phrase. Um, so I hope it does lead to more questioning, including over Afghanistan, but I know, Steve, you think it was right to go in there in the autumn of 2001. Okay, Pete White, who's walking his dog in the early morning light, at least for another few weeks or so. Yeah, come on, let's keep that early morning light, all of us. Collective will. We want the early morning light to be around for a bit longer. Although he does add soon it'll be in the early morning darkness. Yeah, God. Let's hope it's not a metaphor for politics, Pete, but it might be. Anyway, Pete says, not sure if you have plugged these before but on your podcast, but I've been watching the unscripted reflections by Brian Walden, which are on YouTube, on prime ministers, or leaders, actually, Gateskill, Wilson and Callaghan. Yeah, they're really great. And if you haven't seen them, they I recommend them. Um, he also adds, I'd love for you to mention briefly how you go about recording documentaries he's just listened to one there on it's on bbc sounds that i did when nick clegg was deputy prime minister called clegg the liberal who came to power um yeah oh well thank you he says some very nice things about these things how do i do them well you sit down pete and you draw up a cast list and a structure and well that's what how the way i do it and you have a theme and an argument Obviously, on the BBC, it has to be an impartial argument about somebody, so you put both sides, but there has to be a structure. 
And then you seek the key people. So with that Nick Clegg one, this was many years ago, he was still Deputy Prime Minister. We made the call that we did want to interview Nick Clegg. I've done those with uh, documentaries about, uh, God, all of them. Jeremy Corbyn, um, uh, Gordon Brown, Tony Blair. And in each of those, we and David Cameron, we made the call, and Theresa May actually, not to interview them and just those around them. Uh, but with that one, we thought Clegg being this Lib Dem who got them into power, you needed his voice. Um, and sometimes it's deeply satisfying. Sometimes it's frustrating, Pete, when interviewees say no and so on. But anyway, I'm thrilled that you listen to them. And um, uh, they sometimes enhance your A-level politics course. Tell them all, Pete, to tune in to King's Place on September the 13th on the live stream. Uh, which you'll be able to get uh, uh, from the Midlands, and it's very and thank you. A live show in the Midlands will go down well. I'd love to come, Pete. Let's liaise. But in the meantime, get everyone to stream the King's Place one on September the thirteenth. It's going to be epic. Start the new political year. Huge stakes for both Johnson and Starmer, uh, and many rich themes. And we'll all get together and make sense of it all that's um monday september the 13th ollie in peterborough not necessarily a question for the podcast but i was just wondering whether there's going to be an audible version of your new book available of uh, yeah ollie thanks for the question there will be it's that in fact it's there now uh yeah i recorded it a few weeks ago it's what is so exhausting don't know if any of you have had that experience you go into this cubicle for hours and hours and hours and come out completely deranged um but yeah it's very much available ollie and thank you for asking and ollie said oh thank you ollie he said i discovered your podcast right at the start of COVID last year and just wanted to say what a treat it's been landing in my inbox every week oh thank you that's thrilling um yeah and he says hope to see you at a live event soon ollie in peterborough get the train to king's cross and you'll be in king's place on september the 13th in a in a flash is that what is that high speed flash anyway thank you very much for the email yeah i I think we better stop then because those of you running and rowing and cooking bread will be more than done so uh brilliant questions and just keep an eye on the themes this week are going to be those that shape the whole of the autumn really this social care thing and what they decide if they decide and how they're going to raise the money uh, Starmer's response, another big moment, and then we're building up to these party conferences, which I can't tell you how huge they are, especially for leaders of the opposition. Um, so there's a lot going on behind the scenes, which we'll all explore together. Anyway, just a reminder, the prime ministers we never had, from Butler to Corbyn, are in the bookshops now. And um, yeah, tickets for King's Place on September the 13th are on their website, uh, the King's Place website. And I mentioned before, I'm doing, hope to do lots more in my time, but I'm, you know, at the great Witham Art Centre in uh, the famous Barna Castle, instantly very near Specsavers on November the 6th. So um, do get your tickets for that. If um, Make a weekend of it if you're in the region in any shape or form. But look, thank you very much for brilliant questions um, and for all your encouragement. Have a great week and see you again, same time, roughly, next week. Thank you. Bye. Bye.